Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. I'm just excited to share with you my thoughts tonight, but I know we've got some breakout sessions that are going to take off, and they can, they can go at this time. I, uh, I feel so sorry for the people that do the scriptures. I think I had 61 verses last week, or when we did this last lesson. Mr. Hickey said it took me about three hours to put them all in there with the new system, and I felt bad for a little bit. No. When you're spending that much time in the Word of God, you can't go wrong, can you? Well, uh, you can be seated. I just want to start off by talking to you a little bit. You know, as much as we want to be accepted uh, by Christianity, other churches, we will never, never be accepted unless we change our doctrine. It's more than just the sanctuary, how we, how we do things and the sound systems. The thing that separates the, the, the Christendom world and this church of God is a doctrine, and it all centers around Christ. Oh, it must be about, I don't know how many years my son's been married now. It's probably about 10 years, I'm guessing. But uh, there was a church up in Green Lake, uh, right on the lake. Beautiful church. And my son really wanted to have his wedding there. It was just a beautiful, uh, beautiful place, a beach and all these things. And they had done many weddings there. Matter of fact, they opened their church to do weddings. Uh, but when we told them that we would like to use their building, they asked us what faith we were. And uh, when I told them, they said, well, we're going to have to talk about it. And they called us back and said, we do not allow cults to use our church. Now, you, this may surprise you, but you've been living in the dark too long. Every church around here Basically, if they hold fast to the doctrine of the Trinity, considers you a cult. Oh, you might not try to spread the news, but once they find out, you know, they killed people for the, for the oneness. And Jesus himself, when he was brought before Pilate, before his own death, it's not for your works that we're killing you. It's not for your good works. We're killing you because you're a man who maketh himself God. This message is extremely powerful. It's the thing that the church is built upon. The rock. Peter said, you are the son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, Peter. But upon this rock, the knowledge of his deity, he was going to build the church. For fun's sake, I, I thought, um, well, let, let's go back and read Acts 24, 14. Acts 24, 14. I'm going to race him to see if he gets there before I do. I'm going. There we are. 
But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went to the police memorial. We used, remember, we used to have that every year, and for the last couple of years, we haven't now. And I ran into a man down from East Troy. He attends a, I think it's called Grace Bible Church. Um, they're, they're sort of camouflaging their faith too. They're, they're really Baptist, but now they call themselves a community church. It's more, it's easier for people to come that way. And me and him talked at length. He was involved in a ministry of counseling to veterans. And... Uh, grief support, PTSD, all those things. And I told him that I had a lot of experience working with people going through grief in that way and, and counseling. And he was all excited um, about incorporating me into his, his, his ministry. But I knew that when he went and researched who I was, I'd be very lucky to get a call. Even though I might have the skill and the training and the ability, what I believe would determine whether he would invite me to be part of it or not. And of course, I, I never heard back from him. Now, let's look at the word cult for an instance before we get into the study. Because they're going to call you a cult. If they haven't called you a cult, they will call you a cult. The Oxford Dictionary says cult, a system of religious veneration and devotion directed toward a particular figure or object. And that could be Baal, it could be uh, Diana, it could be any of the gods of the Old Testament. But then I said, well, let me see what Webster says. Webster's looks at the word cult and says, a religion regarded as unorthodox or spurious. For instance, James Jones, remember him? The Kool-Aid, all those people that, that killed themselves? He was referred to as a cult. So when they refer to the United Pentecostal Church as a cult, it's not flattering at all. It's not meant to be flattering. And if no one has ever called you a cult member, you're probably not really letting them know what you believe as far as the oneness of God. Because once it gets out, they will take a stand. Now, let's talk about the Trinity a little bit. It's one of man's many attempts to explain the nature of God. Essentially, the Trinitarian doctrine asserts that God consists of three separate and distinct persons. A person of the Father a person of the Son, and a person of the Holy Ghost. Each one of these is independent of the other and is co-equal, co-existence, and co-eternal with the other two. Now the God the Father, he's a person. He's the first person in the Trinity. God the Son, of course, he's the second, and God the Holy Spirit is the third some, when you, you ask them to, under, to explain that to you uh, with the concept of the Shema, they will use examples like 
It's like a law firm. One law firm with three members. Or like a senate with three senators. Or with one club with three members. So when they try to tell you they're, they're not unifying into one, it's three in one. Now, when we look at some of the terminology that they use, the word Trinity, for instance, you won't find it in your Bible. You won't find the words triune God. You won't find separate and distinct persons. You won't find the words co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent. You won't find the terminology God the Son. And you will not find the terminology God the Holy Ghost. These are all things that have been brought into their, their dogma and philosophy of the Trinity that are not based on Scripture. Now, if someone were to come and talk to you tomorrow and ask you to debate with them the Trinity, um, many of you might be a little concerned whether you'd be able to do that or not. But by the time we, we look at the first quarter of this series, I'm going to give you enough that you can stand on that you can withhold the truth, feel good about delivering the truth. One of the things they like to use is the egg theory. Well, the egg is one, but it's made up of yolk, white, and shell. It's still one egg. I like the one for ourselves, that God is like water. God can exist in, a, in, in the air as H2O. He can exist in ice as H2O, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. And it can exist in water. It's one manifestation of one thing. It's still H2O. God is not a committee of three persons or individuals who make up authority and that authority is known as God. That's not true. That the doctrine of the Trinity, or shall I call it the dogma of the Trinity, was developed about 300 years after the apostles died. For the first three centuries, Pentecost, or Christianity, adhered to strict monotheism. They inherited that through the Hebrews or through the Old Testament. There was, no, there was no breaking off, no discussion, no reference in the early church or in the Bible to a triune God. That theory developed three centuries later. Now, if you were to look at all the doctrines of the Bible... The most basic and foundational doctrine that you would find would be the doctrine of monotheism, which means God is one, one God. That, that doctrine is, is reiterated over and over throughout the Old and the New Testament. It was God declaring his unchanging being and his essence. We all know Deuteronomy 6 and 4. The Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now, if you go back and you look, Jesus affirms that essential truth 
in the New Testament as well. Mark 12, 28 and 29. And one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now to the children of Abraham, there has only been and there can only be one God, even to this day. An Orthodox Jew will never, ever accept tritheism. Matter of fact, that's the major thing that separates him from Christianity outside the deity of Christ. Let me read some of the things written by some Hebrew scholars concerning the Trinity. This is from J.A. Hirsch, written in 1941, this is volume one, page 215. This sublime pronouncement of absolute monotheism was a declaration of war against all polytheism. In the same way, the Shema excludes the trinity of the Christian creed as a violation of the unity of God. Now, let's go back and look at another writer. This comes from Stanley Greenberg. Uh, of the Temple of Sinai in Philadelphia. Trinitarian Christians are, of course, entitled to believe in a Trinitarian conception of God. But their effort to base this conception on the Hebrew Bible must fly in the face of the overwhelming testimony of that Bible. Hebrew scriptures are clear and unequivocal on the oneness of God. The Hebrew Bible affirms the one God with unmistakable clarity, monotheism, and uncompromising belief in one God is the hallmark of the Hebrew Bible. The unwavering affirmation of Judaism and the unshakable faith of Jeju. Under no circumstances can its concept to plurality of the Godhead or a trinity of the Godhead ever be based upon the Hebrew Bible or, quote-unquote, the Old Testament. So when we're talking about the trinity, we're looking at something that is not conceptualized in the doctrine of the Jews by any means. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Paul, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John were all monotheistic. There not, was not one prophet not one apostle that was even remotely tritheistic, they would have been killed for that. It's unthinkable to think that God changed who he was after the death of the last apostle and after 300 years after the initial founding of the church. I I see that Malachi 3, 5 says... I am the Lord, I change not. What he taught back then has not changed. What he believed back then did not change. He does not change. Now to try to attempt to divide the one almighty God into three persons is tritheism. The belief in three gods. That's, again, like I said before, that's known as polytheism, the belief 
in multiple gods. Now, the New Testament speaks in harmony completely with the Old Testament. They don't contradict each other. Like Brother Griffin used to say, the new is in the old contained, the no, wait, the old is in the new contained, the new is in the old explained. Vice versa, hand and glove, they fit together perfectly. Ephesians 4, verse 4 says, there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Does that sound tritheistic to you in any manner at all? Now, the Bible does declare that this one God has revealed himself in different unique manifestations to mankind. Each manifestation is of the one true and one living God. For instance, uh, to Joshua, the angel of the Lord appeared as the captain of the Lord's host. In other words, he took himself, he took upon himself a body. To Moses, he appeared in a burning bush and spoke to him from a burning bush. He appeared in the pillar of the cloud and the fire that led them through the wilderness. There were many manifestations of God. The ultimate one was the manifestation of God in a fleshly body that he had not done before Bethlehem. See, God is the Father in creation. He is the Son in redemption. He is the Holy Ghost in regeneration. Only one God, three actions, creation, redemption, and regeneration. Now, the Trinity doctrine declares that the Father and the Son, again, are two distinct persons. Now, the following verse, they'll take you to this verse. And they'll say that this verse is a, supports that concept. 1 Corinthians 8, 5 and 6. For, there, for though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, that word gods is small g, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom all thi are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom all things, and we by him. So they're saying there's one God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we by him. Well, even if they tried to build a building on that philosophy, it would still be not be tritheistic because he could not be God without the, the element of the third party. It mentions the Father and the Son, but it doesn't mention the Holy Ghost. So technically, if God is made up of three distinct persons, he is not God without the third. And at first glance, this causes confusion in a lot of Pentecostals, a lot of people. And when we look at it a little closer, it's not confusing at all. Matter of fact, we'll see that it's an argument against polytheism. Paul is writing against God's many. 
You can see in Paul's writing in the, in the monotheistic faith of the Hebrews that they were told not to have more than one God. Paul is telling us that there is one God, one Elohim, one Lord Jesus who has become our salvation. He is speaking of two manifestations of one God. One God and one mediator between God and man. Two manifestations of the same Lord. Jude, the first chapter, verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God, even or and our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4 and 5 said, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, not two lords, not three lords, only one Lord. And again, the Holy Spirit, of course, in all of these things is completely not mentioned at all. The purpose of that verse was to teach us to not overlook the deity of Jesus Christ. Paul wanted us to remember that Jesus Christ is the flesh of God, the person of God himself made visible. One of the elements that you learn in search of truth right away is the essence of God. What is the true essence of God? Anybody want to take a shot at it? God is a... His essence is invisible. He's the only wise God, the only invisible God. He fills all time. He fills all space. He's a spirit. God manifested himself in a body. It wasn't an eternal body. It was a begotten body. And we're going to look at that in a little bit too. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, God hath on these last days spoken unto us by his Son, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And as a Pentecostal, as an apostolic, I realize the only thing that I will ever see of God is Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible could say, no man hath seen God at any time, and then say later, I have seen God and lived. Is that a contradiction? No. As a spirit in his divine essence, you cannot see him. He's invisible. But as a manifestation whether it be of in, a, in the flesh or a theophany. And I throw out that word theophany because you'll probably run into it when you're talking to uh, people that are a little bit more into discussing the oneness. A theophany is a temporary abode of eternal spirit. So God was a theophany when he appeared to Joshua, a temporary manifestation. When the two angels and God came to Abraham, that would have been a theophany. That was not the Trinity. That was a theophany. They were angels with 
the, that image of God. 1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifest in the flesh. He was received up into glory. John 1 and 18, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. I, we're going to see that word begotten in the neck in a little bit used several times. You cannot be begotten and be eternal the same way. You can't be made and still be eternal. That physical manifestation of God is in Christ Jesus. Um, again, the Bible never, 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 never uses the term God the Son. The Son of God, not God the Son. It, uh, the Trinity does not, says that he's the second person in the Trinity, but Jesus claims to be what? The first and the last. So if he, maybe he's all three, because if he's the second person in the Trinity, and he's the first and the last, wouldn't that make all three of him him? Yeah, I know it's just a play in words. Now, again, the Trinity teaches that the Father and Son are two separate persons co-equal to each other. Let's read some verses here. John 14, 28. Jesus makes this statement. My Father is greater than I. Well, if they're co-eternal and co-equal and co-powerful, we have a problem because Jesus is saying, my father is greater than I am. Jesus as a man, remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago, as a man, he hungered, he thirsted, he grew weary, he slept, he was flesh. He was tempted in every manner like as we are tempted but without sin. He voluntarily, God voluntarily took on those limitations upon himself. As the everlasting father, he experienced none of these frailties. Remember Isaiah 9 and 6, the names of God, he's the everlasting father, the prince of peace. It's not the only time that the Bible refers to Jesus as the father. When Thomas saith unto him, show us the father and it'll make us happy. He says, have I been so long with you? And you still don't know me, Thomas? I said, should have said Thomas. When you see the Father, when you see me, you see the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? In other words, Jesus is backing up Isaiah 9 and 6. He is the Father. But the Father is the Spirit that dwelleth in the body of the flesh that he is, is there. The thing that the Trinitarians have a problem with is they, they cannot recognize him as we do as the Son of God and God in flesh. For instance, uh, Jesus was called the Son of God in Mark 1 and 1, Luke 1.35, John 1.34, over and over again, he was called the Son of God. And then in, uh, he's also in Matthew 8 and Mark 9 and Luke 19, referred to as the Son of Man. Well, he's the Son of God and he's the Son of Man. He was both spirit and flesh. He had a dual nature, which was revealed 
through his spiritual and earthly ministry. In his flesh, Jesus was not co-equal to the Father. In other words, in his flesh, he had limitations. He died. That was a limitation of his flesh. In his flesh, he hungered. He felt pain. But we have to remember that Jesus was more than flesh only. He was also God incarnate. Look at Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. God was manifest in the flesh. Now let's look at some scriptures. Um, in 2 Corinthians, the five, fifth chapter, verse 19, it says, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. God was in Christ. The word God could be used, God is spirit. The spirit of God was in the flesh, reconciling the world not unto another, but unto itself. That's why when the scripture says that Jesus came as a son over his own house, we understand that. He was a son over his own house. As the spirit, he existed eternally. As a son, he was begotten. That's why when he said, uh, we're the son of David, and before Abraham was, I was, he was saying, as the spirit, I live forever. As a spirit, I was first. I have no end or beginning. Let, let me give you some comparisons here. The Father raised up Christ's body. Uh, Galatians 1 and 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, not by Jesus Christ and not the Father, who raised him from the dead. Now, the God, the Father, raised him from the dead. That's what that scripture says. Now, if I go to John, the second chapter, verse 19, Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, who raised it up? Did God the Father raise it up? Or did Jesus raise it up? Is there a contradiction? Or are they the same? Then said the Jews, 40 and six years was this temple and building. And wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. Now the Bible says the Father gives us the Holy Ghost. In Luke eleven thirteen, If you then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? So who's going to give the Holy Spirit? They have your heavenly Father. But notice John 16 and 7. Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Is there a contradiction here? Who's sending it? The Father or is Christ? 
If there's two, there's a contradiction. If there's one, there's no contradiction. Uh, it says the Father will raise up our bodies in the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 6, 14. And God hath both raised up the Lord and will raise up us by his own power. He's going to raise us up by his own power. But if I go and look at John 6, 44, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. I will raise him up at the last day. See how they're interchanged? The Father and Christ are interchanged. God and Christ are interchanged. Not contradicting the word, but you unifying the word. When I look at um, Hebrews 1 and 5, I, it keeps reminding us over and over again that Jesus, the Son of God, was not eternal in, the, in his body. Hebrew one, Hebrews 1, 5, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. John 1 and 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was begotten, he was made. Luke 2 and 11, for unto you is born this day, not in eternity, he was born that day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And then Galatians 4 and 4, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. When the time had come, fullness of time had come, God robed himself in flesh and came to earth to redeem his people. Jehovah has become my salvation. What's that name? Jehovah salvation. How do we pronounce it? Jesus. The Hebrew word for Jesus is Jehoshua, which in Hebrew means Jehovah has become my salvation. And I'm making a statement. The flesh of God did not exist before Bethlehem. When we see Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, or the Spirit, we're going to find um, often those words are interchanged with the Father and the Son. I'm going to show you that in Scripture. First uh, Peter 1, 10 and 11. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now here it used the word Spirit of Christ. 
But now if I go to 2 Peter 1, verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So they were moved on by the Spirit of Christ. They were moved on by the Holy Ghost. Now, either there are at least two spirits, or there's only one spirit that, it, that inspired the prophets. There's only one spirit. This one, if you want to get the man at you, you, you might want to um, be careful how you use this. Either Jesus had two fathers or the Holy Ghost and the Father are the same. Malachi 2.10, have we not all one Father, hath not one God created us? Now was God different with the birth of Christ? Did Christ have two fathers, but everyone else had only one? Ephesians 4, 6 says, One God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. Now, the Bible says that the, in Matthew, the first chapter, Verse 20, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, the son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of who? Is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And then in Luke 1.35, the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee, Therefore, also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Ask them who the Father of Jesus is. Will the real Father please stand up? Was it the Father or was it the third person of the Trinity? Because the Father didn't overshadow Mary, the Holy Ghost overshadowed Mary. See, when you try to be, make monotheism into tritheism, you run into a scrambled egg. You run into a, a diadem of air. Jesus spoke about a comforter that would come, and that comforter would be the Holy Ghost. Then in the same verse that he says that, he declares that he's the Holy Ghost. Now, either that's going to confuse people or, or they're actually going to see that the spirit that dwelt in Christ was a Holy Spirit. John 14, verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not. Neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come on to you. 
Jesus told his disciples that he was going to send a comforter, that they were going to be filled with a comforting spirit, the Holy Ghost. Now, when I go to Acts 2.38, it says this, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, if I tell people that it's Christ in me, the hope of glory. Now, am I talking about the spirit of Christ? Now, I'm talking from a Trinitarian viewpoint, or am I talking about the Holy Ghost? Do I have the Holy Ghost in me and the spirit of Christ? Are there two spirits in me? There can't be. There's only one spirit. And Acts 2 and 4 says they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave the other, them the utterance. In Acts 13, 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. So a number of times in the New Testament, the Bible refers to that Spirit that was going to dwell in us as the Holy Spirit. Jesus, or, or Paul says in Romans the 8th chapter, if that spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he will raise you up by that spirit that dwelleth in you. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal body by that spirit that dwelleth in you. So what's going to resurrect me? The same spirit that was in Christ, right? Jesus said, destroy this body and in three days I will raise it up. So who's going to quicken me at that last day when the second coming comes and the rapture takes place? Is it going to be the Holy Ghost, the third person? Or is it going to be the second person? Or is it going to be the Father? No, they're all the same. The spirit that was in Christ is the spirit that's in me. The spirit that spoke to the prophets in the Old Testament was in Christ, is in me. It's, it's not really, and sometimes it's, you'll be sitting, and it happened for me when I was in, years and years ago. I was dumb as a rock. Probably not much smarter now, but I do have some things I've learned. But even though I've been raised Trinitarian all my life, one day, it all made sense to me. I don't know if it ever happened to you that way. It was like the light came on, and I said, duh. It's like seeing that picture of an old man, and you look at the picture a different way, and it turns into a beautiful lady. Well, did the picture change, or did you see it differently? When God, the Bible says, no man can say he, he is of the Father unless the Spirit reveals it to him from heaven. And we had started that way. Okay, we're going to wrap up because um, we're already getting right near the end. Know you not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Romans 8 and 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. They're interchangeable. Spirit of God, Holy Ghost, Christ, 
the Father in me doeth the works, they're all interchangeable. They're not three distinct separate things. They're all the same. That's why we're monotheistic. When we get into our next lesson, which we're not going to be able to get into until July, we're going to find the number of people during the dark ages, Tertullius and all this, many of these people that gave their life because they had the revelation of the oneness of God. The persecution that's going to rise in the last days, it's not just going to be sin against the message of the oneness and polytheism. You're not going to be accepted. That's why you have to understand, there have been people that have walked away from a monotheistic viewpoint and went and sat in a polytheistic environment. That would be no different than I going into a place where they were, they were worshiping other gods. You cannot divide the deity of Christ. Once God has revealed it to you, you are responsible for a very special treasure. It is so precious that God brought Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees to preserve the oneness, monotheistic viewpoint of God. Because in the world at that time, there was a lot of trithe or polytheistic viewpoints. He wants to protect the message. You are a vault of the truth. You are a torch of the revelation of the deity of Christ. And the world will hate you for that. He says, they hated me for it. They'll hate you too. Thereby shall you'll know thereby you're my disciple because if they hated you or hated me, they'll hate you also. It's, it's more than just trying to blend in. We're not going to blend in, not as long as we recognize the divinity of Christ. We have that we have not, that is not in common. Those two cannot blend together. Polytheism and monotheism cannot blend together. Just like sin can't dwell with righteousness. Now, am I condemning those that believe in the Trinity? No, not at all. It's just that they haven't seen it. And I'm patient with them. But there will be people that have, will come up to me and they've come up to me and said, you're going to hell. You know you're going to go to hell because you don't believe in the Trinity. You haven't had that happen yet? Go to any church. Drive up the street and tell them that you believe in God is manifest himself in flesh. There's only one God and his name is Jesus. And ask them if you'd be welcome in their church to preach that. <laughs> you won't get a call back. No, I'm, I'm not mad at that. I'm proud. I'm proud to be a bearer of truth. The world needs to know who he is. Unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. When those people get baptized in some of these other churches, they're going down in the name of a member of the Trinity. No, when I go down in the name of Jesus, I'm going down in the name of God. 
All right, I think that's enough for tonight. It's, this is an important topic. And we don't talk about it enough. Who we are, we're different. We really are. We're God's holy priesthood, his precious bride. We're espoused unto one husband, one husband. And who is he? Christ Jesus. All right, let's stand together. I hope I didn't confuse you too much. If you can get 30% of that, that'll be great. Most of you already know that. But it's one of those, those doctrines we need to keep before our face. Because we're different than the assembly of God. We're different than the Baptists. We're different. And the thing that separates us I was talking, believe it or not, I am unemployed. So I'm, I get a call from the veterans uh, workforce line. We're here to help you find a job. I said, cool. And I said to myself, I'm not really in a big hurry right now. Well, I talked to the lady and it turns out that we, t- we talked for God for about an hour and a half or two hours on the phone. Oh, she talked about how she was so in love with God and how she wore dresses and, and, and how she was a, a distinct vessel unto God. And I was so glad to hear that. I said, we got a lot in common. We should be separate and stuff. But all of a sudden, it started to change. And then she realized who I was. Oh, you're one of them. And all that good feeling we had for the first two hours seemed to change. You know what? We don't need to be the majority. We just need to be distinct. We need to be the salt. We can never allow our lives to lose the flavor of the unity of God. Lord Jesus, tonight, I I thank you, Lord, for... I thank you for the Bible. I thank you for truth. There's so many things that we don't understand and we may never. Lord, there's so much knowledge in in you. There's so many things about you that we never... Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.